Good evening. I'd like to call this January 17th, 2023 school board special meeting with public hearing work session, budget public hearing number one and budget work session number one and closed meeting to order. Ms. Goodell, could you please call the roll? Yes, Dr. Dimmick. Here. Ms. Downs. Here. Dr. Gould. Here. Dr. Ortiz. Here. Ms. Silverman. Here. And Ms. Tice. Here. Thank you. Thank you. Could you please join me in saying the Pledge of Allegiance? Thank you. If I could now uh, have a motion to adopt the agenda. I move to adopt the agenda as presented. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. May I have a second? Second. Thank you. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Okay, thank you. We have adopted the agenda. We're now at uh, agenda item number two, public hearing for school board vacancy. And I'm going to uh, read section 2.01. In accordance with school board policy BDDH, the time for each speaker is limited to three minutes. Additional written statements may be submitted to the clerk for dissemination to board members and for the record. And I have uh, several speaker slips in front of me, and so I'll call uh, the speakers in the order that they submitted the slips. Uh, and our first speaker um, is, and I, I apologize for any mispronunciations, Tahir Kamar, and for candidate for school board vacancy. And please correct my pronunciation. <laughs> Thank you. Please come to the podium. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to come over here. And uh, my name is Tahir Kamar. Uh, I recently moved to the US with my family and settled in Falls Church. And the main reason of uh, settling in Falls Church was I heard a lot of things about good schools, good administration, good people. And I'm happy that the information was correct. And uh, before coming to the US, uh, I served uh, USAID Pakistan for 17 years in financial management capacity. And out of those 17 years, the last seven years as a chief accountant. So my main responsibilities were supervising the payment section, accounting section, payroll section, and uh, like payment processing, accounting includes uh, audit as well, and budgeting. Budgeting means uh, formulation of budgeting, and then justification, execution of budgets, and uh, then like uh, the, if there is something, uh, financial reporting is part of that one as well, right? And uh, uh, we also have different uh, technical departments in USAID Pakistan, like education. And uh, I was responsible to monitor their financial aspects of those programs. Our main education program was managing the scholarship, merit and need-based scholarship, construction of uh, advanced study centers in different universities, giving them the latest equipments for studies and scholarships for the students, and as well as the basic education programs for flood-affected areas. So these were the main portfolios. Education officers was working on those one. And uh, I also worked there as a association president. Th that was the local employees association. That was a bridge between like local employees and the management. In fact, USAID Pakistan was uh, working under the umbrella of US Embassy. So like there were 1,500 employees, and I was the president of that association to work uh, 
for the common agendas and commonalities. And I also worked as a financial management advisory group member for CFO Washington DC, USAID CFO. And that was a worldwide group. And our main responsibilities were formulate the financial policies and uh, execute them and provide the financial expertise around the world. And uh, while reading your website, when I saw the chapter of financial management, I was so excited that all these items, I worked there for the last 17 years, like procurement, payment processing, payroll processing. So that's why, and I also feel that this is my ethical responsibility to give or return the, to the society what I have learned during my career. So now I think it's time for me to serve the United States and this city and this society. So that's why I'm here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Kumar. We appreciate you coming this evening. Our next speaker, um, again, for the public hearing for school board vacancy is Ms. Amy Murphy. Ms. Murphy. Hi, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Amy Murphy. And like some other people here, I submitted my application to become a member of the school board and fill the current vacancy. My application lists my qualifications, so I'm gonna use these three minutes to introduce myself and tell you why I'd like to become a member of the board. My family moved here in 2016 from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My husband, Brian, and I, we have two girls, uh, one is in ninth grade and the other is in seventh. Like a lot of families who moved to Falls Church City, the main draw was the schools. So when one of my daughters was in second grade, it became clear that she was having trouble learning to read, despite otherwise being an excellent student. Uh, luckily, her teacher identified the problem right away and led us on the path to getting her evaluated, which eventually led to a diagnosis of dyslexia. One day when she was in class and she was wearing headphones uh, to have a test read to her, uh, another student turned to her and said, why do you wear the headphones? Is it because you can't read? And so still shy uh, and a little bit taken aback, she didn't answer. Uh, her teacher took her outside into the hall after the test. And although my daughter can't remember everything that she said, uh, she remembers how kind she was. She remembers how her teacher lifted her up and then offered her a snack from her lunch. So the reason I'm telling you this is because I believe that to continue to have great schools, we have to support the needs of all kids, but also the teachers, the administrators, and the staff that are there to support them every day. My agenda for the coming year is simple. It's to listen and to learn before casting my vote. I know that there are some sensitive issues on the table. And if selected, I'd come in with an open mind and consider those issues from all the different angles. I want to make decisions that balance, that balance both, uh, that promotes balance and also advances equity. I mention equity because in addition to being a mother, a wife, the daughter of a public school teacher, I'm also a lawyer for the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. My cases take me to underserved communities across the United States. And so I am reminded of how lucky we are 
to have such a strong community and great schools, but that not all families are able to access them equally. Being a lawyer also gives me a great, great deal of experience bridging the gap between different points of view. It's with those principles in mind, listening, balance, and equity, that I look forward to the opportunity to serve with you over the next year in order to chart the path forward for our schools. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Ms. Murphy. And then our final uh, speaker for this portion of the agenda, again on the board vacancy, is Mr. Jared Anderson. Mr. Anderson. Hi, good evening. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, be considered for the vacant school board seat from uh, Phil Reidinger. I know that uh, me and the other candidates are applying to fill his role, and I think I speak for all of us when I say that his role is, has some big shoes to fill. Um, my wife and I moved here, uh, like many other families, for the schools and for the school community. And you know, I'm a father of two boys at Mount Daniel, and I've seen firsthand the care and effort that the staff have put into our children's education. And I fully understand that we're a small community, and the success of our little city depends on everybody pitching in where they can, whether that's on the playground, in the classroom, uh, or on the school board. So I want to serve where I can. I learned a lot about the school community while running for the school board in 2021, and I can fully appreciate how um, much of the schools in Falls Church are kind of held up as a gem in the community. Beyond just running for school board, I've also tried to serve in other ways. I'm, the room, I'm one of the room parents, one of the many room parents in uh, my uh, kindergartner's uh, classroom. And I've volunteered at the HTG Games, and I've also volunteered at the library book sale. And I've enjoyed giving back to the community, and I will continue to do so. As a school board applicant, I can bring various perspectives and expertise to the, to the role. In addition to being the father of two young boys at Mount Daniel, I'm also the father of a child who receives special education services in our schools. I think that allows me to have the perspective of an important part of our community, those families who are receiving special education services and those with child special needs. And while no one person embodies all relevant perspectives, I, I can listen to other people's concerns and uh, I do not give pride of place to my own. I know the budget season has kicked off for you all, and I've actually already started uh, reviewing some of the appendices uh, in the uh, budget file that have been put together by uh, Kristen Michael here and Michelle Kopic. And crafting and passing a budget is a very important role for the school board, uh, and I hope to have the opportunity to dive in and work as part of a team with you all. I, pre I previously ran for school board, and I'm fully committed to running this fall. I've watched every school board meeting and try to write up summaries for part of the community that reads my newsletter. My understanding of the school board, school board's role has evolved, and I can appreciate the difference between the oversight of the school board for governance versus the oversight of operations by Dr. Noonan. I appreciate the opportunity to be considered uh, as a potential team member to serve with you on the Falls Church City School Board. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Anderson. I think we have one uh, more speaker. Thank you, Ms. Goodell. Okay, and our final uh, speaker for this portion of the agenda is uh, Ms. Bethany Henderson. 
Good evening. I'm glad I found y'all this evening. A little tricky downstairs. Um, I'm Bethany Henderson. I'm uh, glad to be here with y'all this evening and grateful for the opportunity to share with you why I'm interested in school board and serving on the school board right now. I know y'all all received uh, the applications um, that we submitted, so I'm not going to repeat that, uh, what I said in there. I just want to share kind of a couple of things that I have learned over the course of my career as a nonprofit CEO, with serving on nonprofit boards and working very closely with numerous city governments. Uh, both in D.C. and around this country that I think will be really relevant to serving on this board and the work that you do and the important work that we need in our schools. Uh, first is my, my job, my day job, is really about how do you digest, process, and intake vast amounts of information, data, variety of different opinions and interests and needs of stakeholders, often conflicting needs and interests of stakeholders, uh, and <clears throat> the values and strategic plan of the organization and cohere all of those to make the best decisions possible for the community and for the organization. And there's a huge analogy to that, right? We have a lot of different stakeholders in Falls Church City and in the schools that are important. Our students, our teachers, our parents, our community members, our administrators. And all of them have different perspectives and different needs. And so figuring out how to integrate those, not necessarily to the consensus view, because there's rarely you reach consensus without different stakeholders, but to outcomes that everybody can understand that are intentional, that are based in principle, and that are based in the values and the strategy that the school board and the administration have identified is something I have a lot of experience doing those types of activities and something I'd be very interested in doing with our schools. Um, number two, you know, our schools are really personal to me. I've got two kids in the schools, as you know. My kids are both neurodivergent, so there are different needs uh, that they have, which has been a whole new learning experience for me, um, kind of in learning the different opportunities and um, possibilities and expectations of the schools. My kids have been here since first grade. They're, I've now got my oldest is in high school. And so I've been able to work in and with the schools in a variety of different ways as a parent volunteer in classrooms. I just wrapped up Give Day, so you should be really proud of your middle schoolers. They packed 25,000 meals yesterday with some high schoolers' help. Um, but really getting to work with and know the people in our school building. And that's one of the things I've learned along the way in my career as well, having crisscrossed the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, is the importance of getting to know the people that you are working with, the people that you are representing, and the people that you are supporting. And while I'm known for talking a lot. I also listen a lot. Listening is really how I learn, really listening to the people and listening for between the lines. So not just the words that are being said, but what they're really communicating and what the underlying needs are and asking questions, right? Not assuming that I know uh, or that my experience is a universalized experience. And the third thing that um, I'm really excited about, I know a lot of people aren't excited about this, but I am, is really understanding the budget. I work with a lot of complex budgets. I've worked with city budgets uh, in my day jobs for many years uh, and really understanding how to move the levers and how to be a good steward of the money and understanding how to interpret the numbers and put them into the human impact, right? So it's not just about making the numbers work, that's important, but what do the numbers mean and having the budget work in service of the community instead of in service of just the finances. So I appreciate you letting me share my experiences. It would be an honor to serve with y'all. I know the other candidates are also fantastic. Thanks for the time. Thank you very much, Ms. Henderson. And again, thank you to all of our candidates for your time this evening. And I welcome you to stay, but uh, we are <laughs> If you want to learn about the budget, no, um, but you're, you're, please, you're also welcome to, to depart as well. But thank you all for your time this evening. This, we really enjoyed uh, meeting you all. We did receive all of your credentials, but it's great to see put names with faces. So thank you very much again.
Uh, and I did, I was remiss, I did want to um, publicly announce that we did have another candidate, uh, Ms. Uh, and I, Sholay Lee, and Ms. Lee um, has withdrawn her application. So we have um, four applicants for this uh, vacancy. Uh, yes, yes, and um, yes, and, and Mr. Harper as well. Um, but today's morning announcement still had Ms. Um, Lee's name in it. Um, so uh, Mr. Harper um, also uh, withdrew. So we have four uh, candidates now for this school board vacancy. Okay, we are going to move on now to um, item three of our agenda, business action and information. And we're at 3.01, update on equity work in schools. And I'll turn it over to Dr. Noonan. Thank you, Chair Downs. Good evening, everybody. Thank you all for being here. Um, tonight, I'm going to turn it over quickly to uh, Mr. Bates, our Chief Academic Officer, and Dr. Santiago. Um, but before I do that, I, I just wanted to make a, a quick statement that this is one of those opportunities where we get a chance to kind of see um, how, how the work of our equity uh, focus um, is beginning to play out and also in the context of the new policy that you all have uh, passed recently um, around equity and so um, as you're hearing the presentation tonight um, just for context kind of keep in the back of the back of your mind uh, policy AB that you all have uh, worked on and, and done beautifully with and um, their presentation will, will hit some of that along the way so with that Mr. Bates thank you Dr. Noonan good evening Madam Chair Downs Vice Chair Gould and members of the board. So we are really excited uh, for this opportunity to provide an equity update to you. Um, equity is something that we've done in, in Falls Church for, for a number of years, and I know it predates you know, myself and, and Dr. Santiago, but um, over the past few years, we've really tried to um, laser in on um, some specifics uh, with our equity work and, and really be targeted and focused in, in what we do. We've um, talked a lot about equity not being the work that we do, but, but what we live. And, um, and when, you, when you think about equity work, it, it really should be the fabric. I'm sorry, Ms. Minson. It's my three minutes. <laughs> that was a quick three minutes. <laughs> Ms. Minson's always on the job there. Um, but. But uh, you know, as, as I was sharing, and we, we talk about this in our, our equity teams um, in so much that um, you know you're doing equity right, um, and, and we want to move away from doing equity, but you know, but you know it's really grabbing hold when um, the work that we do, equity, is at the center of it. Uh, we always have students at the center of our work, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, student data performance. Uh, we'll talk about the DEI policy that you all um, developed and then updated uh, last year. Uh, we'll talk about some of the work that happens in our um, HR department, but you know equity is really um, grabbing a hold whenever it becomes uh, the fabric without the thought of having to be intentional. So we're excited about that. So for tonight's presentation, we'll look at um, six focus areas. I'll take the lead on uh, the, the first three areas, which starts with our equity journey and the audit in response uh, that uh, took place uh, three years ago. We had uh, an equity audit, well, actually about three and a half years ago. So we'll talk a little bit about that and how we responded. We'll also dig a little bit into policy AB, which is our DEI policy that uh, you all 
uh, developed and, and um, pushed through or, or voted on a couple of years ago. And then equity by the number. So we'll dig just a little bit into student performance, but not too much. And I'll talk a, a little bit about our plan moving forward for um, uh, sharing more detailed uh, student performance um, numbers with you all. And then for the second portion of the presentation, we'll look at uh, really how our equity work aligns with the strategic plan as we're uh, building that culture of wellness, equity, and belonging, investing in our students and staff, and then focusing on our uh, community as it relates to equity. So when we, we look at our journey, um, back in the spring of 2019, we consulted with um, an, an equity expert, Dr. Julian Williams, who conducted an equity audit. And uh, a lot of this, um, of, of what he did was rooted in qualitative um, surveying of students, staff, and parents. And um, in doing so, um, he gathered a lot of information around well, kind of where we were as a division and where we and where we needed to go. And um, moving forward from that in the fall of 2019, I think it was October of 2019, Dr. Williams came before the board and provided an equity audit update, but also shared um, those findings with with the board. And so what we've done for you is pulled out five um, pretty heavy hitters that we've been able to focus on really for the, uh, the past year um, to, to 18 months since, um, since receiving those equity um, recommendations. Uh, the number one uh, item we have listed there was that landing webpage and we're proud to share that we do have um, an ongoing um, webpage that provides um, living resources for our staff and our community as it relates to equity. He also, um, in his recommendations, talked about the importance of curriculum reframing or developing um, curriculum and, and looking at the curriculum through an equity lens. And so that's something that we've done really for the last um, three years. Um, but over the past year, we've taken a, um, a stronger focus on that. Uh, we've shared um, curriculum reframing guides with our CTLs. And then just in general, as our teams are meeting, what we've tried to do is move, um, move towards having conversations and making decisions with equity in mind. And so that's um, thinking about are our students um, seeing themselves, their unique selves in the curriculum, in the stories that are being shared, um, in the assignments that are being done. Um, if there are characters and stories, am I as a, a black male able to see myself in um, what I'm learning or identify um, again with, with characters or how are certain characters being depicted? Are there positive stories or um, are we seeing trends of, of negative stories? And so going into spaces again with that equity lens as we're making these curriculum decisions. He also talked about um, our diversity um, and recruitment plan. And so our human resources department has um, worked closely with our equity, our division level equity team and have, has been really targeted over the last um, number of years with um, recruitment as it relates to diversity. Um, one thing that we're proud to share is that um, it doesn't matter what position you may be um, you know, applying for, uh, we have 
an equity or multiple equity related questions um, in our in our interview questions. And so whether you're on the operational side or a principal or an instructional leader at the school level or at the central office level, as we are reviewing applicants, as we are framing and developing questions, as we're um, pulling together panels, we are um, keeping that equity um, that equity framing or in mindset, do we have diverse a diverse panel? Um, are there certain things, um, experiences um, that lend themselves well, not to just being a good fit and match for our school division, but th they're also bringing that, a diverse perspective and understanding of uh, what it is, where we are and, and where it is that we wanna go. And so we're uh, proud of the work that our human uh, resources department has done. We've also um, worked at strengthening our partnerships with our um, HBCUs as well. Um, our professional development, Dr. Santiago, and, and you know, please feel free to jump in if, if needed, but over the years we have done um, microaggressions training. We've also done implicit bias training. Um, one of the charges that um, Dr. Santiago has, has put forth is um, the cultural proficiency training and all um, staff who come in will be um, exposed to and and um, engaged in cultural proficiency training. And again, it's not just professional staff or it's not just instructional staff, but all staff coming in. One thing that we um, have weaved into the onboarding of new um, staff over the past couple of years is providing um, time in the schedule where we would provide them with um, our equity charges and expectations, and then also introducing all new staff in the summer as they come into um, equity training. And then that fifth um, item there that uh, the audit recommended was the chief diversity officer position. And although we don't have that title, we have Dr. Um, Santiago as our director of equity and excellence who oversees all of ESOL services and, um, and equity for the division. And that was something that um, Dr. Noonan put in his request to the board and you um, all or the board at the time supported that, which allowed us to um, do some uh, reorganizing within the curriculum and instruction and achievement department to um, ensure that we had a director of equity and excellence. So we were proud to celebrate that. When we uh, look at policy AB, um, there's a number of charges that, that the board has uh, set forth for policy AB. What we wanted to do is really highlight four um, charges specifically that um, we have, um, we feel that has aligned to our work as we've engaged in equity. And we can um, talk um, more about this in the future and then in an upcoming slide I'll, I'll share a, a, a couple of updates and, and ask um, from the board as it relates to, to policy AB. Uh, but the first thing that, that we included in here was um, just ensuring access to a high quality education for all of our students. And um, that's something that we have committed to um, and, and something that we want to can continue to do. Um, 
And when we talk about all students, we also have to keep in mind that we have students who do need more. And so um, as we are making decisions and as we are looking at um, access and opportunity, um, what do the data say about students who have been traditionally marginalized or, or students who have traditionally fallen into those gap groups? Um, how are our decisions aligning with the charges of the board under this policy? The second um, item we included here was um, the supports needed to uh, address the racial disparities um, for students so that they can be successful. And um, a lot of this gets into our MTSS work. You've heard in uh, uh, various presentations, whether it's an ESOL presentation or a, a data presentation, we will often talk about um, supporting students by name and by need. So. Um, ensuring that we're providing uh, teachers and, and staff with the right supports um, so that they know exactly what the students need, not just from an academic standpoint, but uh, from a social emotional standpoint or work that um, we may be aligned, may be able to align uh, what we're doing with uh, community efforts and um, needs that span outside um, or beyond the classroom. And then the final two uh, that we included here, um, this top one here uh, talks about the expectations that you've outlined in, um, in the policy, um, where we would uh, really narrow in on the differences and the disparities of certain groups of students. And so um, in doing that, expecting that there would be an annual um, update or report um, to the school board that would outline our specific or specific gaps that might be experienced by certain um, groups of students. And so that's something that we're um, also prepared to do. So what I, I will share in, in advance, whenever we look at the um, data slides that were provided, we didn't include or I didn't include specific gap slides. I can, as we walk through that, I can um, outline that there are some clear gaps, um, but uh, what the thought was for this presentation was that we provide um, more of an overview of the equity work and um, specific data points around gaps, we can include those in upcoming presentations because, um, and I'll share this actually in another slide, so I'll, I'll repeat myself just a bit, but we have two presentations that we have started to do annually, which is our spring presentation um, of data and our fall presentation of data. And I'll talk a little bit more about that and provide um, some rationale as to why um, we elected to not include like a deeper dive of um, the gaps in the gap disparities with specific slides. Um, and then the final um, item that we in included here, again, that gets to into our HR work, which is so um, important and aligns with our strategic plan, but um, securing, recruiting, and retaining a diverse uh, workforce. Uh, we are in a, a great position in, um, in our school division to recruit and retain some of the most talented um, staff whether, again, we're talking about support staff or professional staff, instructional staff. And so as we are attracting some of the best and brightest, whether they're new, if we're talking teachers, whether they're brand new teachers, um, or we um, 
every year are able to bring in um, veteran um, staff or veteran teachers who have many years of teaching experience in um, various divisions, whether locally or, or not um, non-local. But again, what are we doing to be um, targeted and intentional in um, supporting the the um, recruitment of staff that mirror our students and that do have the diverse perspectives and understanding of um, equity and diversity as it relates to the work that we're doing in our school division. So this slide here, it, it speaks to that um, previous point that I was making around expectations that the school board has for us as it relates to presenting data, um, specific to gap data. And so you can see here that we have two presentations that we do that are specific to um, data. And the first being in the spring, um, where it's more of a general overview because we know we don't have the um, scrub data from the state, the SOL data. And so um, what we can do is typically we'll provide kind of like a, a preliminary um, overview of kind of where we are in uh, that gives you some insight or, or a little peek into what we can anticipate um, might come, come through over the summer. But we, in that presentation, always caution the board, the public, and the staff um, in remembering that this, in that spring presentation, that's, those aren't the final data. Um, and the hope is that any, uh, once the data is scrubbed by the state and it comes through, that we would see an uptick. And then we also provide um, an update on the types of assessments that um, we are administering to the students. And then in the fall is where we do that much deeper data dive, where we look at the final unscrubbed data. And then we also um, look at other performance metrics and um, we get into our participation data we also get into our IB numbers. We'll have our graduation data um, at that time. And then we take a, a, a dive into um, the FCCPS student and what it is that we are striving for um, as we are developing that profile of a Falls Church City Public School student. So all of that brings us to that final box that um, was recently added. And as uh, I was, looking at the policy a little more um, thoroughly and reflecting on a presentation, Dr. Santiago, Santiago and I met and we also um, shared with Dr. Noonan. We don't or haven't in the past provided an annual equity report to um, the school board. And so our thought would be that um, falling in um, within the guidance of the timeline of when the policy was revised in May of 2022, um, it, might, it might benefit or behoove all of us if Dr. Santiago and I worked on developing over the next few months an actual um, equity report that did include um, some of the data that is um, outlined in, in the board policy. So attendance data, discipline data, um, some of the data that we might not include in a um, data presentation to the community, but we could put that in, 
in um, an equity report, and this would begin the, the annual equity report. And then the ask would be that um, one of our board members even give us some guidance um, and, and note specifically we could provide updates on here's where we are, um, but give us some guidance on what we would want to see or what you all would want to see in this annual equity report that would go to the board. Um, in addition to that, we would still include gap data in the annual data presentations that Dr. Weilerman, um comes uh, to the board with, but the thought was to, um, to include the gap data in this presentation when we're giving an, like an, an general update of our equity work might not be the, the best time to do that because we know we're gonna want to dive into into that data a little more so yes uh thank you mr bates i think that makes a lot of sense um i'm going to go ahead and volunteer dr dimmick um to help you <laughs> to help you um if you want to bounce some get some feedback from the board in terms of that annual report um because dr dimmick was was really our author of that policy in the first place so that would be great excellent excellent and sorry um, dr dimmick <laughs> <laughs> and and so um just a final note on that because I know this is this is new information that has just kind of um, emerged based upon our thinking over the past you know 72 hours or so. Um, but the initial thought was um, in starting this report, we would go through um, we would go through the policy and just look at those charges and and really be able to speak specifically in the report to each one of the charges that are in that that DEI report so we would it would just be nice and clean and easy to follow and then the final note would be um, kind of put a, a bug in um, Trish Minson's ear just to and just to make sure that um, we're also um, in in guidance and and within parameters um, for any data that you know we would want to to share to making sure that it's not personally identifiable and whatnot Okay, so let's take the next few minutes just to, to jump into the data. And so this, these data were shared with you by Dr. Weilman back in, in the fall. And I wanna share, uh, share this again as, as a precursor just to orient you with how well we did. And uh, what we celebrated in the fall was that we are approaching and in some areas at pre-pandemic, our pre-pandemic numbers with our SOL pass rates. And, and you can see as a compare, um, comparison to the state um, how many points our students were on average above. But if you kind of you know, focus on that middle column there, you can see that um, in the aggregate, um, we're, we're between 87 and 92 um, for our overall performance numbers. And then we shared um, these data with you so when we uh, Dr. Weilerman did back in the fall, so they may look familiar. So again, without including separate gap data slides in this presentation, if we think back to that middle column that we celebrated uh, last fall, um, and we look at our traditionally marginalized groups, we'll see that um, our black students, well, they did make, they they did drop by nine points, so that's a target area that we uh, really need to look at. But in these other areas here, 
Um, and you'll see in the upcoming slides a number of areas where we did make gains and, and our um, students made significant gains. So um, our students with disabilities made a great gain of um, a 12 point bump up, our multilingual learners a 15 point bump, and our economically disadvantaged a five point bump. But again, not including those individual gap slides, if we think back to where we were in the aggregate between that 87 to 92, so let's just, as a kind of a mean average, um, say we're at like an 89, we don't need a gap slide to see that those kids are in the gap. These groups of students are on average between on the lower end, 35 to um, on the higher end, 12 points um, below where the aggregate performance was for all students in FCCPS. As we look at mathematics, again, we celebrated our students who are traditionally marginalized with the gains that they made from 2021, 2020-21 to 2021-22 with our black students making a nine-point gain, students with disabilities a seven-point gain, multilingual learners and economically disadvantaged making 12-point gains respectively. But again, if we're drawing that comparative analysis of a mean um, aggregate score of around 89, we can see on the low end, again, we're between you know 30 to, to 35 points in, in the gap. So we have work to do. Um, and that's not something that it, it's not a it, it's not a secret that that we have work to do because we have kids that as great as we're doing and as much celebrating as we need to do uh, or that we should do based upon the great work that our staff has done and, and how responsive we've been and the fact that um, as we outlined in the fall our students in our traditionally marginalized groups have made significant gains in that in that um, year post COVID. They're still in the gap. And then when we look at science, we celebrated our black students who made a 23 um, point jump students with disabilities an 11 point jump multilingual learners in science a 17 point jump and our economically disadvantaged students made a um, seven point jump um, for science in particular we were at 88 um, 88 points in our mean ag aggregate and so again we can see on the lower end um, upwards of 45 um, points below and on the higher end, about 15 points. So we see the disparity between um, where, where our, um, some of our traditionally marginalized students are falling. And then we included this here because we just wanted to remind you that there, you didn't see slides for history or writing because um, we were able to get a waiver for uh, those tests um, during that COVID year of 2020-21 and uh, we were able to do our performance-based assessments for those. And then this last data slide here is our, our WIDA slide, um, WIDA data, and 
um, again, celebrating the growth of our, our students. And Dr. Santiago can speak to this much more eloquently than, than I can. But um, if I remember correctly, you know, she had shared um, in her previous presentation to the board, um, our primary focus for our multilingual learners is that um, we're looking at the growth that they're making as they progress through the WIDA levels. I mean, we always want to um, celebrate passing an SOL um, for this particular group of students, but that's not our primary goal and our primary focus. Um, a number one is ensuring that they are making um, progress through those WIDA levels, and then we also want to look at their exit, um, their rate of exiting um, uh, ESOL uh, services. Uh, but we highlighted a couple of data points there, or a few, three data points there that we wanted to remind you of. And so when we look at uh, the data, what, what is the data telling us about um, opportunities for growth in Falls Church um, City Public Schools as it relates to equity and, and student performance, our uh, DEI work, um, the work that we're, we are doing as it um, supports the policy that our school board has adopted and our recruitment and retention. Well, from a student performance standpoint, um, all of our gap groups experience growth. And so that's something that definitely needs to be celebrated. And we're, we're gonna continue to do that and commend our, our fabulous instructional staff and support staff for that. But, um, you know, it, equity work, when we, when we engage in it, it, it tells us to be honest with the data and to call out what needs to be called out. And so, um, truthfully, we can only do so much celebrating um, when we know that we have students who are, um, although they have made some gains, as, as far as 40 to 45 points to 15 points in the gap as it relates um, to the aggregate. And we can't use the we can't use the excuse that um, we are such a high performing school division, um, as Dr. Noonan has shared um, with with us before. We we celebrate the fact that we are um, the highest performing when you look across the board at, at the tested categories. Um, on average, we are the highest performing school division, but that doesn't. Um, that doesn't take away the fact that we still have to elevate up for, for certain students because not all students are experiencing um, the success that, that some students are. And so that's what the data is telling us. Um, some of the things we can do to respond, um, increase our um, inclusion um, our, of gap groups in acceleration and enrichment programs. We know now that there, um, there's a lot of research and and um, evidence that supports that the continued cycle of remediating kids um, oftentimes leads them to fall further behind. And so what can we do to provide acceleration and enrichment um, for students, um, all students? And then support on the um, parent side, um, parent and education programs, and then resources and support for extended learning at home. And so those are um, some of the things that we know we need to look at. And so if with that um, being said, 
what we can do is pause for questions and then um, once we answer uh, your questions or provide clarity on um, anything that you might need um, clarity on, Dr. Santiago will lead us through the second part of the presentation. Thank you so much, Mr. Bates. That's very informative and interesting. Anyone have any questions? Yes, Ms. Tyson. I didn't have a question. I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you. I just thought that was really helpful and it was a really clear um, explanation of, of where we stand. And I just appreciate the balance of acknowledging what we do have to celebrate without you know, hiding or making excuses for um, the growth we still have um, to, to strive for. So I just thought it was a really well balanced. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Dimmick. Thanks very much. Um, thanks for your presentation. I'm enjoying your presentation. I want to, if you could go back a slide, I want to ask some questions about that last slide. So I would love to hear your thoughts on how to increase inclusion of the gap groups and what would it, what would we need, uh, writing new budget questions, what would we need if we wanted to provide more parent support and education programs? What would we need if we wanted to provide resources to support extended learning at home? So if these are areas where we can grow, um, what do you envision what, and what would we need? Yeah, so I think, so, uh, for your for your first question, we are we're positioned very well being a pre-K IB school division, and um, Dr. Noonan has shared, um, you know, many times on that the fact that um, we already like to you know, believe, um, not believe, confident that we we do offer students more because. Um, as our teachers are looking at um, the standards and um, and aligning the curriculum, the lessons to the curriculum uh, that they're developing, there's also the IB component, which takes our students um, deeper and requires more. Um, and the level of engagement we believe is is much greater. And so the fact that um, a student sitting in a standard classroom is being offered um, a, a greater level of engagement in, in, um, in deeper learning. I think that, um, that supports the acceleration. I think to the, the point that was, was mentioned um, earlier, we have to look at, we have to look for opportunities in the classroom to support the learning of, of our students. And so, um, in um, days of old, there, there um, may have been, again, the, rem the remediation where we're pulling a student out and the student is getting either um, a small group or a one-on-one -on -one after school or before school or when, you know, during that class. But what are things that the teacher is able to do in the classroom to support um, the students and level up and so uh, that can be targeted small group or it can be um, individualized instruction so those are some of the things I think you know initially as it as it relates to acceleration and, and enrichment and then there's also um, there we know that um, sometimes there there is a benefit to um, offering students support um, during non 
during um, or outside of the school day. And so we do have um, or and want to continue to look for opportunities for additional academic support for students, whether it's on uh, a late bus day or, you know, you know, another point in time uh, during the day. So, yeah, I can speak um, specifically to things that we're working on for providing parent support and education programs. So uh, currently we have um, our parent liaisons are working with the tech team to create a series of parent workshops for families who kind of need some, some support in basic computer skills. So that's one thing that we're working on, supporting families that, that need that support in order to build their capacity to, to help their students at home, but also you know their own growth support. Um, and then in addition, uh, both of our parent liaisons are attending um, workshops with Fairfax County's parent liaisons, so they'll be going through a train the trainer to, um, to for their their PEP program. It's called Parent Education Program, so that they'll be able to fill, facilitate that program here as well with families. Um, so those are two particular things that we'll be providing to have support for specific families in need of that type of support. Um, and. That's the most concrete answer I can give at this moment. Uh, Vice Chair Gould. Yeah, no, I appreciate the uh, the presentation so far, um, and I think I think to to Ms. Tice's point, uh, equity. I think it's good that we acknowledge where we're doing well, where we're not. But I think with with equity work, it's it's really what we're doing, not necessarily how we're doing sometimes. And and I think it's great that we have that opportunity. I would encourage in um, data presentations, which I'm sure Dr. Dimick, um, I, I'm probably echoing something that she's mentioned earlier, but um, making sure we do cohort based if we're going to do longitudinal which I think we did a great job of not focusing on state comparisons. You only did one slide, which is great, because it's really about how we're doing with our own district. Um, and longitudinal might be more than just two data points, especially given the 2020 year was, as Dr. Wildman said, it's kind of a tough year to compare against. Um, and I'd also suggest having this comparison to some of our other groups in the district, just to make sure that we're seeing how we did grow in other areas with our other student groups, not just the marginalized groups, just to again look at, it's not a baseline comparison by any means, but it's really just how we're doing with other groups. Um, and again, I think it's, it's we need to make sure that we're okay with this. And I think as a board and as a community, we're all, we're all fine with acknowledging where we're not. And also we're all great with celebrating where we are. And so we can do both and, and we need to do both, so. Thank you, Vice Trickle. And I'll just say, um, in point of celebrating, I know it's only just two data points, but you know, I, I just wanted to um, just make note of, of Dr. Santiago. I know you've worked a lot with our ESOL community, and you know, just to see the growth among our, our English language learners in those sets is terrific. So, great job. And the, and actually, let me. I, I was remiss in not acknowledging Principal Appreciation Week. So I also want to put it out there. Thank you to our principals who support all of our learners um, and, all, and, and our ESOL teachers who, you know, it, you can see the hard work that's been really given us some great results. And I, I echo Vice Chair Gould, I think, to even have some more data points would be great. But what's up there is, is terrific. And we have some work to do. And we also have some more presentation to, to move forward on. So I think, are we turning it back over to you, Dr. Santiago? Okay, thank you. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. 
So for the, the next several um, focus areas, the last three focus areas, we'll kind of walk through <clears throat> what we've done over the past three plus years um, and, and, and align that to our strategic plan. So when we think of, <clears throat> excuse me, building a, a, a culture of belonging, we're really thinking about um, our equity journey over the past several years. And, you know, at the heart of all of this is really creating a culture inside the division where all people, staff and students feel cared about and feel like this is a place where they can, they can be, but they can also thrive <clears throat> in their work and their learning experiences here. So this has been a really rewarding journey for Falls Church City Public Schools to grow and be able to recognize the people and the self-reflection of this work that we've done over the past several years, but also increase the transparency in the work that we've done and the work that we're doing. So along with building a culture of belonging over the past several years, um, we've started an equity newsletter that goes out each month. Um, it goes out to the division and then it goes out to the community as well. Um, inside that newsletter, we try to highlight things that are happening across the division, provide um, a space in that newsletter that helps um, a space of learning and growing in that, and then highlight things that are happening for the school board, things that are happening in, in each of the schools. Um, we've our, our elementary schools recently went through a book audit in which they um, all the teachers reviewed their classroom books to make sure that there was um, representation of different experiences and different life lives that are happening for each of our students so that there's a space for each student to find something that they connect with um, and they can see themselves in what they're reading um, and if if there weren't, then we are filling those gaps to make sure that all of our children have a space to, to enjoy reading and engage with reading in, in a way that they feel seen and recognized. Um, over the past year and a half, I've been providing cultural proficiency training to all, all staff of, of Falls Church City Public Schools. Uh, we've been going through a small group face-to-face -face training for self-reflection um, for the past two plus years maybe three years now. We've been doing um, uh, the Our History Matters initiative, um, highlighting uh, each month that's celebrated um, and then highlighting new information, uh, events that are happening across, the, across Northern Virginia and um, the area and then things that are happening online so people can engage with things where they're able to engage with things. Um, we also added on to Our History Matters, we added Our Story Matters, and we highlight staff who, um, who their lived experiences fall in line with um, the month that's being celebrated. So we highlight those staff um, internally and externally. Um, they write their stories about who they are and we share them. We're also doing that for all of the, the major religions that are celebrated. So a staff member who celebrates that religion writes um, an email about what that religion means, what's the background to it, but also how their family celebrates that religion and that's sent out to staff. Um, and that's, people really like that. Uh, we've been working on curriculum reframing for the past several years and really just supporting people and thinking about when you're teaching, when you're choosing resources, look at these resources through a different lens. Like, not only does this meet your content standards and your SOL standards, but is it, is it perpetuating a, a negative stereotype of somebody? If it is, then you have to address that within your classroom or you need to not select that resource. And so 
just really having that conversation of, of does this resource perpetuate a negative stereotype for people or provide a negative experience for others, it really starts opening people's eyes and having more self-reflective conversations about what you're seeing and seeing things in a different light to be able to provide students with a better experience. Um, we've also uh, been uh, doing school board resolutions. Uh, you all have been doing school board resolutions <laughs> for each of our months, which has been a really nice addition. And then the following two bullets are bullets specifically from the strategic plan for wellness, equity, and belonging, and that we're ensuring all stakeholders understand how to navigate FCCPS systems and provide equitable access, um, and fostering a culture of belonging and empowerment for staff, students, staff and students to strengthen our caring community. Our next section is investing in our people, our staff and students. So in this section, really thinking about, we have so many different people, staff and students, and our community who are coming to us day in and day out with different lived experiences and different, different wants of their outcomes. So how do we support them, but also provide space for that growth and opportunity for them? So while our function, <coughs> in a school division is certainly on education. At the background of that is, is the adults that make it work, whether it's operations, whether it's instruction, it, it's adults that make the machine work. And while we're here for students, we also have to ensure that our staff is, is well cared for and invested in as well. So thinking about how we're investing in this slide, mostly on uh, supporting our students, uh, this, this year, Valerie Hardy and, um, and Lindsay Jacobs, our new uh, counselor at the high school, took a, a bus full of students to the Alcanza College Fair at George Mason University. So Alcanza is a Hispanic college, it's a college fair for Hispanic students. Um, so it's a, really, it's a really special place for students to go and have an experience learning about colleges of interest that are, that's for them. For, I mean, it's just a space for them to feel safe and feel engaged in participating in that college fair. This is the first time that we've brought a group of students uh, to Alcanza. It was a great experience for, for the adults and for the students to be able to go and participate in that. And it's certainly something that we'll keep engaging with each year. Did you want to? You did want to? I can tell. I kind of <laughs> do want to add. Um, no. And, 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 why I feel compelled to add is, is because I do have an experience with the Alcanza uh, College Fair and, and when Jen and I had initial conversations about it, you know, you, you can't help but ask the question like, so who are we, who are we having discussions with about college? And so we should be having discussions with all students about colleges. But when we then get into the access and the opportunity, um, what I learned as, um, as, as a principal was that there were certain segments of my student population that had never been on a college campus. Um, and I, I had to ask, well, you know, why, you know, why not? And, and not so much why not, but what can I do to provide that experience? And so um, this was an opportunity for us to say that, and, and again, in my experience, you know, whenever I kind of looked into um, this opportunity, and I was told that, you know what, if you want to bring a ninth grader, bring a ninth grader. If you want to bring a 10th grader, bring a 10th grader. And um, so 
in, in meeting with the students and, and talking with Dr. Santiago, you know, we felt that it was very important, no matter um, what the age, no matter what um, your GPA is, you need to go onto a college, uh, college campus and experience what it's like to spend a day on, um, you know, at a university and talk to admissions officers um, and ask them questions and uh, just be able to uh, engage in that experience that so many other students have. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things is that um, some of our students have not had conversations about um, what might need to be done or, or how they might access um, the next stage of their educational um, career um, simply because no one's asked them or because um, they just didn't think about it. They, they thought that it wasn't accessible. And so the things like, or, or opportunities like the Alconza College Fair helps to break down some of those uh, misperceptions and barriers or um, insecurities that kids may have about themselves because they just never experienced it. I'm done. I do, you're. <laughs> it's so it's close to your heart, so I had to let you. Um, so the other the other thing to shout out about the Alcanza College Fair is that in addition to that, Sherry Mural is our college and career specialist at the high school, and she's just been incredibly responsive and just has done a really wonderful job. Every time I reach out to her with something that I've learned or something, I'm like, hey, can you put this up? And she's like, oh, I already have it. So just today I sent her, I sent her a thing about uh, scholarship opportunities from the Hispanic Student Foundation or the Hispanic Scholar Foundation. She's like, it's already on there, but I'll make sure that I email it out to, to the group and I find specific students that it applies to and make sure that they apply for it. So I was like, great. Um, she's just really done a, a wonderful job. So when we talked about the Alcanza College Fair, she was on top of it. She booked the bus. She did all the coordination of everything. She, she made sure she talked to every student that uh, qualified that could go to it, and she was just on top of it. So um, huge shout out to Sherry because she's doing a really, really nice job. Um, we also are participating and have been for many years now the Early Identification Program, which is a program through George Mason University for students who are, would be the first generation student in their family to go to college. Um, if, they, uh, uh, if they are accepted to the program, they're accepted in their eighth grade year. Um, they participate in student mentoring throughout their high school career. Throughout the summer, they go to kind of a, a prep program, uh, but then it also really engaging way to learn about other careers. Um, and if they maintain a 2.5 GPA, they have, um, they have access to, um, to guaranteed admission to, to NOVA, and if they have above a 2.5, a 3.5, they have um, guaranteed admission to George Mason University and an opportunity to have a full scholarship there. GMU also has received a new um, endowment and, and grant opportunity, which um, will bring EIP students' tuition down to, to basically about $1,000 a year. Um, so it's an incredible opportunity for our students to get into. Um, and so Matt Sowers is leading that work for us this year, and he's done a really great job at creating now a screener that every um, seventh and eighth grade student will fill out um, so that we know right away who is a possible 
first generation student to go to college so that we can target students and make sure that we have as many students as qualified to be into EIP because to me if we have students who qualify being an EIP and they're not an EIP then we I've let them down like that's it's just it's a gift of of a future that we're not giving um, our MTSS program, which is uh, led by Julie Macrina, she's over the past several years has really changed the way in which we do MTSS. Uh, we have incredible MTSS lead teachers at each school that are leading that work and ensuring that um, when we're having conversations about students, they're data-based conversations, not feelings-based conversations, so that we're really identifying what type of support students need and providing that to them. Um, recently, we have a, what's uh, we have a racist incident response framework. Not something you really want to have to have, but really something good to have if you need it. Um, so we do have a strong uh, framework for that now, which is uh, grounded in research. And luckily, we have um, some lovely uh, people in our division that are trained in restorative justice practices. So Sarah Tennyson came recently and spoke with you about that. Sia Knight is also trained in restorative justice practices. And that's a large part of what um, the response framework includes. Um, Typically that is something that you have that we do when something has happened, but in order to create a caring community and to invest in our students, we really have trained a lot of our elementary teachers to participate in responsive classroom procedures. Like if you have younger students, you might've heard about morning meeting. Um, so morning meeting is a great opportunity to build community with your students and to really set the expectations and build a space where you're in a circle and having really good conversations with students at a young age. Um, I also did it with my middle schoolers to start each of my middle school classes when I taught ESOL. Um, so morning message slash like beginning of the class message is just a really great opportunity to create those structures and, and have a, a safe space for students to share and be a part of their learning. Uh, Mr. Bates is also, uh, Mr. Bates, myself, and, and Dr. Swanson are a part of uh, the DMV Collaborative, um, and we recently hosted them to share with them um, our, our equity journey, and um, that, was a good, that was a good time. Can I just, yeah, so to the DMV Collaborative, to that, that piece, yes, it was, it was, it was a um, unique and, and um, great opportunity for us to meet with leaders from other school divisions in um, not just Northern Virginia, but also um, Maryland and the district. And um, for us to share the work that we are doing around equity, um, but then also learn what they're doing around equity. And it's always nice um, when you can share the work that you're doing and others say, wow, that's impressive. Um, so, um, you know, I wanted to, to kind of capitalize on that point. And then just, uh, I don't, the restorative justice practices, um, that it's important to kind of highlight or, or note how that intersects with equity work, but then also how it intersects with um, being responsive to um, students because teenagers, students will <clears throat> um, sometimes choose to engage in a behavior that offends others, um, whether um, it was um, just mean, intentional, or um, whether they lacked an understanding of what the impact would, you know, might be. Uh, 
the restorative, it's important to intersect our restorative justice um, with discipline and with equity work because we want to look for opportunities for growth, learning, understanding, and sensitivity. And that's what we've been able to do by tri triangulating um, the three. Uh, because sometimes things may happen where, when there's an expectation that discipline is um, administered. And that needs to happen. But it's also important that um, the the offended have an opportunity to voice or share how that has impacted and caused harm um, to them. And then the person who has done that um, really needs to experience and have a, um, at least um, we need to provide a, a venue and an opportunity for the person who has offended to have an understanding of how what you have done has offended um, someone else as opposed to discipline, separate or discipline, remove and not get to the root of some of these things that continue to happen that we know we need to put an end to. Um, and we can't fully address it if we don't have some um, some teaching and learning and understanding around what um, what's happening or, or what has happened. And so I just wanted to um, to highlight that because I know um, not all places are doing um, doing that work or they're including that in, in the work. And so it, it's important if we're gonna move along the continuum um, of equity and inclusiveness, then that's a key, the, the responsive, um, not just the responsive classroom, but that restorative justice is is key. So thinking uh, about investing in our people more on the staff side, the things that we've done here are develop our equity team. So we do have a division level equity team, which I've talked about in the past, which is comprehensive of um, representatives across each of the school buildings and oper operations. So I do want to highlight that earlier we talked about all the things in HR um, and not only is HR um, engaged in this work but Amy Hall has has been one of our members on the equity DLT and Amy is our director of HR and I know that for the public. Um, <laughs> She's been a part of the, the equity DLT for since we started the DLT and she's been incredibly engaged. She's very good about any time the operations team meets. She's always giving updates about what's happening on our team. Um, so it's just really nice to have a team that, that is representative of the t entire division but fully committed to the work that we're doing. Um, and so that does lead into the next one with our commitment to increase diverse teaching and professional staff. Um, and we've really taken a lot of a lot of work towards towards that. Um, we've had we've opened conversations with, as as William mentioned earlier, the HBCUs. Um, Amy sends out recruiting opportunities to the whole staff to be able to travel to them or participate them virtually, and just really work on ways in which we can recruit the best diverse and best teaching staff for all of our students and the best professional staff for our for our division 
Um, we've recently added on to our pathway to education with a with an agreement with the Northern Virginia Community College, um, and you know our existing relationship with UVA and Virginia Tech to support um, even more teacher, even more professionals, even more support staff, even more staff across the division with um, their growth opportunities and access to growth opportunities. Um, I think, you know, even in our development of the strategic plan, there's been a really focused um, effort on gathering the voices of all, um, but, but there's been a focus on ensuring that the voices of those that aren't typically heard are heard. So typically, if you're a part of a group that's voice isn't really heard very often, you, you really stop saying things because nobody's listening. So it takes a lot of work to, to step back from that and have people under, like have people feel like they're being heard again. So it's, it's not a quick change to just get people to start talking to you again. And I think we've been taking a lot of steps across the division to, to make people feel like all of their voices are valid and heard. Um, the other night, or not the other night, the other day in our equity division level team, uh, Miriam Schimmler, who is a teacher at Oak Street Elementary School and a member of our DLT, brought up a really great idea that, that her and Jeremy um, are going to start at Oak Street is that she felt like teachers needed a, a safe space to come to um, like their equity team members and, and have a space to talk about, hey, this is something that happened in my class and I didn't really know how to handle it. What are some options? Like, what should I have done? What can I do? What are some ideas? So they're gonna start having those opportunities for teachers to come to their team and, and have a space to ask those questions and really being able to, to empower people to ask hard questions like put yourself in a vulnerable space of something happened in my class and I didn't really know how to handle it what do I do what are some ideas because none of us have a hundred percent of the answers but when we put more of our heads together we'll have a better answer and option to support our teachers um, so I'm really, that was a really wonderful idea of Miriam. So I'm really proud of her and, and we're hoping that, you know, that we can grow that into other spaces as well. Um, so we're working on implementing a system-wide PD plan. That's, this is the last two are a part of the strategic plan. So implementing a system-wide PD plan that's responsive to the needs of all employees. Um, so we've already taken great action towards that. And then I think recruiting and retaining diverse, highly qualified staff is just, I think that's an ongoing thing that we should always have as part of our goals and FOCA. All right, last section. So building our community. So um, as a school division, we're built in service to our community and to ensure that um, the students that come through our, our, our schools are productive, positive members of our community and that we serve our community in that sense. So in that vein, we're, you know, we're, we're working to build and strengthen structures that create a system for families to feel like they're a part of FCCPS um, and actively engage the community to understand what their needs are and be able to respond to those needs by breaking down barriers. So in that vein, um, we have parent liaisons. Thank you to the school board for that. We have uh, one and a half school liaisons for the division, um, and it's it's already been remarkably supportive of, of having both of those people to support the division and to support the Family Resource Center. 
Um, so the Family Resource Center is, uh, it is very busy. Our parent liaison in there is working with, te is working with families uh, pretty much all day, nonstop, uh, supporting them in, in various needs, um, whether it's you know their personal needs and what they need to, to have a, um, a supportive day uh, or how to support their students more productively. So they're pretty great. Uh, recently, uh, thank you to Valerie Hardy and Amanda Ronkel and Matt Sowers. Um, and then the big thanks goes to, to Deng for, um, for adding on the Zoom interpretation add-on. So anytime we have uh, any type of informational um, meeting or anything via Zoom, uh, we can hire an interpreter and that's, uh, we can now have interpreted Zoom sessions, which is pretty great. Uh, we have Language Line, which the, the increased use of Language Line has been really wonderful over the past several years. Uh, Dr. Swanson recently pulled some data to um, kind of answer some, some uh, markers inside the strategic plan of how we're breaking down barriers and supporting families. Um, so Language Line has been a really helpful tool in order to do that as well. Oh, I didn't add that. Uh, the, the addition of class tag, which is a big shout out to, to John Brett and Steve Knight. They've been doing really great work in getting uh, schools and student uh, families and teachers to use class tag and break down communication barriers that way. Um, we've been having uh, increased IB information sessions. So uh, there was a there was a big you know response from the community and the strategic plan focus groups that people wanted to understand IB more. And so that has been a response from the IB coordinators across the division to provide more information sessions, make that more accessible. There's resources on the website that are um, a little bit more lay layman friendly for understanding IB. Um, and then over um, the last part there, overcoming barriers to effective communication, including language accessibility and tech issues is coming straight from the strategic plan and is work that, um, that uh, we're all, several of us are leading across the division. So, lots of things there. Discussion and questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Santiago. This is very thorough and informative, and it's, it's great to see all that we're doing to support uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Are there any questions from the board? Yes, Ms. Silverman. Hi, thank you for the um, great presentation here. I'm in the Miriam Schmoller fan club, which mm -hmm. is a very crowded club. And um, just wondering if that is school-wide right now or if it's system-wide at this point or what, what the plans are in expanding that. So it's just school-wide. She just thought of the idea in our meeting two weeks ago. So we met later on to talk about what that might look like and how we might start that. Um, so it's just in like the beginning stages of starting. But Thank I, you. It'd be amazing to, if we can grow that. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say we're um, so I, I think we're hopeful that that might become a model for us to use across the division, because, um, you know, one thing we've we've learned in in engaging staff in conversations that, you know, whether it's how do I respond to an incident or something that may have been said in my classroom at like midstream i'm in the flow of teaching and a student says something um, and i just don't feel comfortable addressing it um, or whether it's engaging in uh, engaging a team in say curriculum reframing something more formal um, we found that um, oftentimes you know it, 
for for the teachers in in the room oftentimes teachers want to be perfect and we um we become um very concerned and almost feel an anxiety that we may say the wrong thing or we may respond in in the wrong way especially when it comes to equity whether it's um something around you know race or gender identity and so what we've really been trying to to do and working with staff is um give them that reminder just to always approach with care and sensitivity and, and empathy and you know you you might say the wrong thing or um, you may on upon reflecting um, realize that you could have approached that in a different way um, but the bottom line is like are you present and available in there when a kid needs you at that point in time and what we would never want to see is um, because of our discomfort we allow something to happen or something to go unaddressed because we were because we were too uncomfortable with in that moment in time leaning in so we're hoping that that would be a model that makes sense because oftentimes in that one moment of time you might not come up with the right solution the best solution, the, the perfect solution as a teacher wants to be in that perfection mode. But, um, you know, having, you know, the other people to bounce ideas off of, I think is great. Thank you. Any other comments? Yes. yes. Go ahead, Richard. I have a comment, a quick question, and then a clarifying question. And I think I just channeled my best Phil Reitinger by <laughs> prefacing what I was about to say. So that was um, uh, a comment about the, um, uh, I, the Alcanza anecdote, but also just the outreach. I think overall, it's great to hear the, uh, us utilizing our small city and all the examples and anecdotes of that individual outreach that you all were mentioning. I think that's great that we can not just identify the students on a chart like we saw in the last part of the presentation, but also reach out and provide access, physical access to different resources to send you know, opportunities. So that's great to hear because I think that's what we pride and that's why as we heard from the speakers in the beginning, why a lot of people move to the city. Uh, clarifying question, um, the DMV, uh, uh, DMV group that met, what's the organizing body that pulls you all together? Or is it just a network that you all connect with? Yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's um, a formal but informal group of um, director level and assistant superintendent level um, instructional leaders okay. who, um, collaborate on a on a routine basis so um i i, I think similar to um other groups um oftentimes you have folks who um, are in leadership positions who look for opportunities to grow and learn from other folks who are doing similar work in in other divisions and so <clears throat> one reaches out to another and that's kind of how it that's grew great. organically um but it's it's grown to um, focus on professional development, on learning, on research-based practices, and sharing sharing of best practices from one organization to the next. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Because I think some of those groups are usually state-based or they're too national, and it doesn't have that that regional feel. So that's great. And then the only the clarifying question was on slide fifteen. Um, I think it was your second to last bullet. It said uh, building a culture of belonging. And you mentioned ensuring all stakeholders understand how to navigate the system to provide equitable access. Can you expand on 
slide or 15 page 15 I'm sorry in the PDF yeah that's it that's it the second to last bullet can you expand on what that means to ensure all stakeholders understand Right. Um, so part of the things that, that we talked about in this strategic plan is that came up were that people might not always know how to navigate the system with all sorts of things. And I know how to navigate school systems because I've been a teacher and I work in school systems, so I have a level of knowledge. Oh boy. I have a level of knowledge. I didn't turn it on a level of knowledge about the school system that kind of supported how I navigated it with my own children in a much different way than like my friends who aren't teachers, let alone people who, who might not, English might not be a comfortable language for them. So how do we provide equitable access to the same level of navigating the system that I might have or that Dr. Noonan has for his family? Because I might be able to access things in a way because I know the system much easier, but I might be able to pave an easier path for my children to certain things than others who don't have the same background knowledge that I have. So how do we level that playing field to make sure that like all of the systems of Falls Church City Public Schools are equally and equitably accessible to all people? But I'll, I'll also defer to you both. Ms. Tyson. There we go. Uh, thank you again for all of this. Uh, it's um, it's kind of mind-boggling to see all the different things that are going on in such a small school system. I think that every time we have one of these presentations. Um, I just had a, uh, one small clarifying question when I was looking. Uh, I'm glad to hear that the, um, the leadership team is still meeting. I'm wondering if those minutes i looked on the equity website they're still just from like 2020 so are, i'm i'm glad to hear your meeting so the minutes will be updated at some point tomorrow sure. oh, perfect okay thank you and i also um have never been able to figure out how to find um the equity observer beyond like online anywhere is that are those issues published somewhere online they're not on the website but it is something like mary beth and i have talked about getting them on the website i'll do that tomorrow too great thank you uh, and then my final question, if I can remember it, I knew I should have written it down. Um, oh, the Family Resource Center. Uh, I think it's such an exciting resource and I'm glad to hear um, you say that, that the liaison is busy uh, you know, throughout the week, which is fantastic. I'm just curious if we, are tra if we have any data on that resource center, like how many families we serve or how often, or what, if there was any way we could share either with the board or with the community, like uh, in, a, in a data way, in a quantitative way, like, what the resource center is doing because i know it's doing fabulous work but i couldn't i couldn't articulate that to a community member if they asked we can definitely do that um so some of it would would certainly be beneficial to be qualitative and understand like the type of things that they're doing but we can definitely quantify as well thank you yeah Ms. Tice just gave you a nice to-do list for tomorrow, Dr. Santiago. I was like, I don't really have a lot of meetings tomorrow, but <laughs> now I have things to and, do all day. <laughs> and I might offer if that might be um, that might be something that we would include in our equity report, um, as opposed to because I, whenever I think about it, I don't know is that would it be most appropriate to have it in an update to the board, an equity update, or a, you know an ESOL update that Dr. Santiago made 
may do or in our annual equity report. And so especially when we start, um, when we talk about the data um, piece, because we know that's something that we want to include in that, that report, not just the student performance data, like we said, but also our um, recruitment and, and retention data. Um, we could also look at um, our exit interviews and some of the, the input and feedback we receive from folks who have exited and mm -hmm. to your, your request as well. That might fit nicely in that report. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking um, in terms of the Family Resource Center, both from a community engagement perspective, like I would love to be able to tell the community specifically what, what the Resource Center does, or especially if I were, were to find a family who I think could benefit from the resource. I want to make sure that I have an accurate understanding of what they do. So if I'm pointing them in that direction, that I'm on, I'm on base there. Um, and then, of course, from a budgeting perspective, I know last year we had added the 0.5 which I was fully in support of, but it would be nice to kind of have some data to support that in case we need to go down to 1.0 or go up to 2.0 or whatever, as that as the as the position evolves or as the center evolves, it would be nice to have some some more info on that. So thank you. Sorry for the to-do list, but. Uh. Oh, I, I love a to-do list, so it's great. Um, but I also was, I can, I can write something up for Dr. Noonan's weekly notes about like the things that the Family Resource Center does also. That would be great. I know when I was PTA president, it wasn't term. clear kind of what was under the Family Resource Center versus what was under the social workers. And I know it's they work, very, but they work well yes. together and that was beautiful. Very, yeah. I just wasn't sure if there was a clear delineation that, or if it's just kind yeah. of. <clears throat> Thank you. Anyone else? Um, the only comment I had, and, and this is um, not to put anyone on the spot or um, to be decided on tonight, but you know, as I was reading this presentation and thinking about some of the things that um, have happened while while Dr. Dimick and I, at least, have been on the board, um, you know, there's um, and actually actually the whole board. I, I you know, I look back at. Um, some of the changes we made with the calendar, removing the religious holidays, um, the incident at Meridian. And, you know, one of the things, and there have been other incidents, you know, incidents here and there over the years. Um, and, you know, the one thing that, that is clear is that, you know, the community members went to talk to me, and I'm sure my colleagues feel the same way. And it just really um, strikes me that the community wants to be part of the solution and how can they help? And I know that I sat on your ESOL advisory committee and we have a host, a number of advisory committees and I've been thinking about, um, you know, is it time to really look at maybe a DEI advisory committee? Now I know that you already, and I'm not putting anyone on the spot, you don't need to, I'm just throwing this out as food for thought. Um, and I know that, you know, Dr. Nunez is very protective of the staff's time, which I understand too. So, um, you know, and, and we do have ESOL, so I don't know if it maybe is something to think about, maybe expanding the mission of that committee to include more than just ESOL, or is it another, is there maybe an advisory committee that we could have community members be part of this so that when, God forbid, another incident might happen at Meridian, we have a group ready to go of, of community members who can really, um, dig in deep. So again, don't just something to think about. And yes, Dr. Santiago, yes. So I did not mention on our equity DLT, we do have a community member on that. Christine uh, Lee Buckholtz is on that. And um, so she comes to that with a frame of like welcoming Falls Church and as a mom and as a community member. And so um, one of the roles that she plays in that is like making connections back out to the community as how they can support the, D the DLT work and the division work. So 
there is kind of some community but not in an advisory right okay well maybe we can talk about or think about that some more um and that's good i didn't yeah. even realize that so that's good good to know yeah, yeah. okay anything else well, thank you. This has been a great conversation, very informative, and uh, we look forward to our, the and I guess we'll call it the annual report, or equity, annual equity report, <laughs> and uh, in the spring, and then also another update in the fall. So thank you very much for that presentation this evening. It's very, been, been great, and great to see the strides we've made, and, you know, we know that it's only, you know, upwards from here, and that we've, we've got some more work to do, but we've made a lot of progress. So thank you both very much. Okay, we're going to move on now to uh, section four of our agenda, public hearing number one on the budget. And uh, section 4.01, public hearing in accordance with school board policy BDDH, the time for each speaker is limited to three minutes. Additional written statements may be submitted to the clerk for dissemination to the board members and for the record. Ms. Goodell, did we have anyone signed up for the public hearing on the uh, budget? No, we did not. Okay, thank you, Ms. Goodell. Okay, we're now at agenda item number five, work session number one on the budget. And uh, section uh, 5.01, FY 2024 budget questions and answers. And I'll turn it over to Dr. Noonan. Thank you, Chair Downs. Mm -hmm. um, this evening we have 16 budget questions that have been answered um, following the presentation that was presented on Tuesday night at the budget. Um, want to take just another opportunity to thank Kristen Michael and Michelle Kopic uh, and William Bates. Uh, for helping participate in some of the drafting of these um, responses along um, with with the team. Um, in the past, what we have done is we have not gone question by question um, and read the answers, but rather gone question by question, say anybody have any 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 questions based on the uh, information that has been shared. And tonight, I think we'll do that same process. We'll just, uh, we'll go question at a time. If you have any questions to follow up based on what's been written, we're certainly happy to help answer those or clarify. Um, but the questions then will be published on the web uh, on, our, on our budget page. So um, again, maintaining transparency of the budget as we move through. So with that, um, I'll turn it over to Kristen Michael um, for uh, the presentation. <coughs> Thank you so much. As we're starting to pull these up on the screen, um, I'll go ahead and get started and we'll have them up on the screen in just a second. Um, so the first question was related to revenue forecasts from the general government at various points during the budget process. So we reached out to our colleagues at the general government and they provided us with a chart um, that showed for each fiscal year what was the revenue projection in December, March, if there were any um, changes to the tax rate and then what their final adopted budget. Any questions on question one? All right. Mm -hmm. Sure, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Thank you. Um, so just help me with these numbers here. So we were told in, we were told in December of last year it would be a 2.5 increase. I'm just making the chart just a smidge bigger yeah. on the screen. Okay. Thinking that will help us. So we're at FY24. This budget is FY24. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So Sorry. last year we were given the guidance of 6.7%. Okay. And the year prior, 2.5%, 3.1% prior, and 2.0% prior to that. So last year at this, kind of in this moment in time, since we're only in January, but um, when we got the information from City Council, we were told 42 
a year ago we were told 6.7 and in actuality it turned into an 8.4 because in march we got a revised projection yep. of 15 percent um and so what the council did at that time was made reductions to the tax rate um on for homeowners taking it down by um what was that nine cents uh, essentially, a nine cent reduction was turned back to the homeowners, which left us at um, a, a lesser percentage. And so we ended up, our total adopted budget was 8.1%. Uh, However, the final guidance from the from the council was um, slightly less than that. So what, what I believe that she's done in this chart in terms of putting this together is they looked at what was all of their general um, fund tax revenues on this chart, right? So when they look at it, it's just what tax revenues are they getting in their general fund? So excluding tax revenues for special items that are in enterprise funds, um, say stormwater, other um, mm -hmm. rates like that. Um, and they included what they projected in December, as Dr. Noonan indicated, what that projection got revised to in March. So last year you could see it went up significantly by March then if the council took an action to reduce the tax rate, which they did, and then that last number isn't our adopted budget, it's their adopted budget increase in revenue as compared to their prior year's adopted budget. Not that you can foreshadow the future. <laughs> we're hopeful. But I see where you're going. Do you envision, you know, we're told 4.2, which is half of last year's guidance. Do you envision this to, to be up or down I, I don't want to answer. I, I do think we're in an inflationary environment, and that makes me nervous to think that it would go up. Um, so I, I'm not getting, I'm not hopeful um, okay. that it's going to go up. Okay. We'll say that. If it does, great. We'll take it. Right. I just like to, you know, it, it's, you know, getting money on the, on the back end of a budget is right. always a little frustrating. It's totally frustrating. And, and we do have a commitment from the, from the city manager that he will do his very best to give us the, the, revenue forecast up front so that we can make our adjustments on the front end and, and i don't mean to imply that that everyone's not working with the best facts that they have at the time gotcha um but yes thank you sure any other questions on number one okay uh question number two is related to parental leave so we received a multiple number of questions from parental leave and other topics. And what we did when we answered these questions is we reflected all of the different um, questions that we received on parental leave, and we then referred back if we felt another question answered. So for example, when we get um, to question number nine, we're going to be referring back to parental leave. Um, and then we do have another if the question on parental leave was different, which you'll see farther on in terms of who's included, that response is separate, and we'll get to that. Okay, if there are no questions, I'll move on to question number three, um, which is related to contract length changes. I'll have, I just have a comment for this. Um, so this is the question I submitted. Uh, and I just wanted to make it clear, the, the individuals in these two positions that I um, cited are fantastic, but I also think, you know, someday, unfortunately, they will leave us, and I think it makes the positions, our ability to attract stronger candidates if those, position, those contracts are, are lengthened. So it's not, 
the people in there are fabulous, but it's also, I think, looking forward to that that makes it, you know, someday when easier to attract other people for those two positions. Yes, and as part of the compensation study, they're looking at contract links for all positions. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. So moving on to question number four, um, which is about state compensation funding. Any questions on compensation funding from the state? Question five was related to um, employees that are at the top of the salary scale for the highest salary for each lane. <laughs> Ms. Silverman, I'm sorry. Thank you, Chair. Um, do other juris neighboring jurisdictions, I know that you mentioned them, that they have um, uh, limits on their um, steps as well. Do you know if, and I'm assuming we're going to get that information with the compensation study, but do we know offhand just um, if, if they are much higher or lower? So when you look, when we look at salary scales, each salary scale has a beginning step and an ending step. Right, and the compensation study is going to look at not only what is the salary at that beginning step and what is the salary at the ending step, but how many steps there are in total. Um, each jurisdiction in this area is using, this is called a step and grade system. It's tremendously common in education. Um, in this region, this is the predominant method. One division had stepped away from it um, and actually came back because they found um, it was very difficult. Um, in terms of explaining it to employees and that comparability. So it's very common. And Siga will tell us um, when we look at not only each of our scales, but the different lanes on the scales, um, how many steps the other jurisdictions have. So that will be included in our analysis. Thank you. Uh, okay, moving on to question six, which is about advanced academics. Ms. Silverman. Thank you again, Chair. Um, so I'm still learning a lot about um, what this, the new position, the 0 0.5 position is doing and kind of where we were in the past with advanced academics and where we're heading. Um, can you, exp I don't, I guess this question goes to Dr. Noonan. Um, Principal Dougherty had adjusted the um, the current advanced academic teacher schedule to provide more time on uh, Wednesdays. Can you explain um, how frequently that happens and how much time they're getting? And so, I mean, basically what I was trying to look for with my question here was, um, will this new position allow for the same amount of um, instruction that they were, that identified students were getting previously? And I, I kind of feel like the, the answer didn't quite get at the question I was asking. So wondering so, if that Wednesday situation does rectify that. So the short Wednesdays is when um, the gifted and talented advanced academic teacher at um, Oak Street is picking up extra time that was lost um, in the pullout for those students that were identified. That started last week. Um, I, I don't know minute for minute if it's exactly the same, but it is more contact than it was previously insofar as they're, they're doing it on short Wednesdays. Um, the, the questions about the, the 0.5 advanced academic teacher, um, addition to the 0.5 that we put in last year, 
and how that will be purposed really is a site-based decision by the principal. Um, if that principal wants to, and the Oak Street principal wants, and we're only talking about Oak Street here, right? Um, just to make sure we're, we're all clear. So if, if the Oak Street principal wants to utilize that position to do other kinds of instructional programming with kids, that's an option that would be available to the, to the principal. Um, however, um, as, as we understand, um, it will be really important to communicate that effectively between now and um, moving forward. Um, but I don't anticipate uh, a whole lot of change with um, the current process that's in place with some of the pullouts. I do think that the position that will become a 1.0 position will be half-time sort of administrative, professional development, doing some testing, um, probably picking up a couple of, um, of the activities that are associated with our gifted and talent program or advanced academic program and then half of that position would be direct services to students. So um, again, that'll be a conversation we'll have with the principal at Oak Street going forward. And uh, yes, that is a, a um, site-based decision that, that I would fully anticipate that Principal Doherty can implement herself, but on our end, uh, on what, what the school board is tasked to do with the budget is just to make sure that it's ad adequately funded. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, given that part is in our purview, I did want to see, you know, if this 0 0.5 was sufficient in order to um, to bring back the, the the type of instruction they they had been receiving previously. And if it is not sufficient, then maybe a, a 1.0 would need to be considered, which, again, is in the board's purview. If, if the plan were to put it back exactly the way it was, 0.5 is far more than adequate to do that. I think the, the broader conversation that we need to have as a, as a team is what is the right model for advanced academic instruction for students. And I think it's a combination fa of factors. And I think that this 0.5 gives us the opportunity to provide the push-in and it also provides us the opportunity to do the pullout as needed. So again, I don't anticipate that there would be any changes in the pullout from what we're, what we're providing now. Um, but what I do anticipate was, is that it would give us more opportunity to do some push in with some other students that can be identified as advanced academics as well. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head that this is part of a larger conversation mm -hmm. of, of, I guess, how, um, you know, I, I'm not the education expert, but um, how we approach, um, you know, um, educating the identified children. Sure. But I, I, I will say, as the educational leader of the division, this is sufficient funding to run that advanced academic program at Oak Street. Okay, I, to run the model that y that you had just spoken of, uh, it would e be either way. Either way. So it's it's sufficient to have to to go back to where. Um, identified uh, students were a year ago, it, the 0 0.5 would be sufficient to have the pullout for one hour a week? The 0.5 is sufficient to do that. I, I'm sorry, the, the 0.5? No, no, the 0.5 this year is sufficient to do that. We, we don't need to add any more staffing to the advanced academic to be able to provide exactly what students had last year. The, the difference is that we, we made a change in the model so that students are getting both push in and pull out. So if we wanted to go, if we wanted to completely revert back to exactly the way things were last year, we don't need any additional staffing. The additional staffing that's in here is to help buoy up and sort of um, 
make the program more robust at Oak Street so that we get both the, the push in and the pull out. I, I love the push in idea. I think that's great for all children, um, all students. Um, but I, I do understand the, um, the, the point of view of, of some where, where the pullout is, is needed for their kids. So. Yes, uh, Dr. Ortiz. Yeah, I, I think, th thank you, Ms. Silverman. Thanks, thank you, Dr. Noonan, for explaining the differences. I really think that this is, um, <clears throat> this brought, you know, understanding that, I, I think the key takeaways that I'm taking from this discussion are the resources that are proposed in the budget are sufficient for a number of different approaches to providing advanced academic or gifted instruction. I think the question before the board, and if that's the case, I mean, I'm kind of pretty comfortable with the way that it's framed, at least just in terms of a number of FTEs. I think this broader conversation about the best model um, for the students is something that the board should, should have, and I'd kind of advocate that we figure out time to have that. You know, and I don't, you know, and there's obviously a lot of things we have to talk about, but I think it's important for us to have that discussion publicly. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. Anything else on this question? Yes, yeah. Mr. Gould. Yeah, I, and I, I think, I think, I, I know we're crossing, you know, boundaries of operations and governance in some degree, and I think we're also talking about how, as, as uh, Dr. Ortiz mentioned, how programmatically this should be delivered. Um, I think the one thing I would challenge us all to think about in terms of providing services for gifted education as well as uh, respecting the public comments that were received um, is the fact that students that are, um, it, it, there is a significant issue with the identification process of gifted children that I think has historically been a problem for um, it, it, across education school districts, not just ours, um, around how students are identified as gifted and that created bias in the selection process, which has created a, a, a significant criticism around the equity, equity of gifted programs. Um, so I would challenge us to make sure that we think about that as a possibility of review of how gifted children are uh, identified and make sure that is up to date um, and, and, and have a discussion that Dr. Ortiz has mentioned about making sure that we're also addressing um, are we providing the right services for gifted children. I think there, there is a, a, a national debate around pull-in and push-in services. Um, and I think if we are clear, clarify about what our model is, I think then we can go back to the budget and make sure we, we budget this appropriately. I think for my purpose and for my experience in education, pullout is significantly, has, show, has been shown to be a, per, a, a, a model that does work, that is effective, um, and it doesn't create an, an exclusive or an elitist uh, system. And so if that is the case, and if that is a, su a supported board position or operational decision, then yes, we would have to address that now so we don't have to wait another year to try to make sure that we're addressing and serving our gifted children appropriately. So I think there's a lot of levels to this. I think obviously, uh, yeah, I know we're trying to focus this on a budget question, but I think this is pertinent to some degree. And I don't know how we handle what Dr. Ortiz mentioned is how do we have a working session around this while we're trying to fit through budget questions at the same time. But I'll let Chair Downs figure that out. Well, how, how about uh, Vice Chair Gould, you and I will um, follow up with Dr. Noonan and figure out um, what the best uh, next steps are to continue the conversation. I, I feel like the absence of a, a bigger work session or discussion right now, it seems like the consensus on the board is that we agree that there should be push in to give that opportunity to all students. But we also agree that our gifted students should 
we should go back to the one hour per week pullout. I think is what I'm getting from everyone. I see head nods. Now this is, you know, I, I know I, that I actually don't necessarily concur okay. at this stage. I mean, I think you know, I think that you'd like more information. Budget discussion. I think I agree with Dr. Noonan and the team and everybody else that what's in the what's proposed in the budget is sufficient for multiple different kinds of models and, and provides a certain amount of flexibility. I don't necessarily be, need to be the person making that decision, but I want to make sure that it's been well considered and discussed. Right, that's right. So, um, so we'll 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 follow up on that, uh, Vice Chair Gould, and I will talk with Dr. Noonan and, and figure out next steps for the conversation. But this is a, a very good, helpful um, conversation. So thank I'll, you. I'll also just to just to respond um, to uh, Chair Gould's comment about the significant Vice issue. Chair. Pardon, pardon me, <laughs> Vice Chair Gould, about the uh, significant issues around identification. Um, you know, one of the things that we have been working on recently and has changed substantively, I think, in the last several years is identification to pull in more students that are, uh, that lack um, representation in the process. So, for example, we used to only do the COGAT um, assessment as uh, the, the screener for the gifted program in addition to some other po portfolio type aspects. And several years ago, we instituted the Neglieri which is a, a nonverbal assessment that brings in kids that it's not straight IQ. It's, you can also now do the Neglieri and we're seeing more ESOL kids. We're seeing more representation of, of students of color in particular um, based on that Neglieri and then a more portfolio processed approach to um, advanced academics. So I think we're, we're beginning to get at the resolution around some of the issues of screening and, um, and identification. And um, and I, I do I do think you know just to sort of um, say it one more time the the addition of the 0.5 advanced academics teacher gives us the, an option of providing lots of different services for kids um, and and I'll just double down on what I said before and that is if you want to just put back what was there last year don't fund this 0.5 because we have the staffing to put back what we had last year and I think to a great extent we've done that with the short day Wednesdays. What, what I'm excited about is expanding our advanced academic program to look at pulling in even more kids that are, that are uh, capable of doing the work. Because one of the things we know is that regardless of what happens um, it, you know, with kids is if you raise the bar and set it and support them to get there, they'll get there in every single way. And by the time they get to middle school, they're all leveled out anyway, because they're either gonna go into honors or they're gonna go into standard and then they're gonna head into honors and IB. And the only place that we see this disparity among who gets pulled out and who doesn't get pulled out is at Oak Street um, uh, to, to the greatest extent. So I think what we'd like to do is try to solve for some of that and the point five gives us an opportunity to do it. Dr. Dimick. Um, this is in my questions for next week, but I'm going to put it here since you said you um, mentioned sort of if we raise the bar, we can bring students to it. I would, I would really love to see as many students brought to one year above grade level in math when they enter middle, middle school as possible. Um, the, to me, the only way to equitably provide access to the IB diploma for students to not have to concurrently take two math classes in 10th grade and for students to not have to take a summer school class is to get them started at Henderson at 7th grade math. That's the only way without doing extra math that you can have a kid access that diploma program. So I would, I'd like to lift them all up 
we should get them all to Henderson. I, I'd love to be able up. to do that as well. And I think we do everything we can to make that happen. I think kids mature at different levels with mathematics instruction. Um, it's, it's not a concrete sequential um, way of thinking. It's very abstract, particularly when you get into algebra um, and the like and kids mature differently that way. Um, so one of the things that we added into the Friday note to the school board last week is that there are multiple pathways. If you're a, a standard level student in middle school or even elementary school to get to the diploma program. And one of the things that um, I, I talked with Jen Fessenden about last week is, you know, once the SOLs are over, we can actually start during the school year, the next sequence of course during the school year so that kids can begin that journey in an online um, standards-based approach where um, they'll be able to move through the content quickly uh, if, the, if they want to accelerate. But it is, um, you, you know, it is, it is a challenge um, and, it, but it, and it's a trade-off, but all of our kids who want to achieve the diploma program can achieve the diploma program if they, um, if they follow a sequence to get there. But I, I do wanna be careful about saying we want all kids to be above grade level or as many kids as possible to be above grade level by the time they leave elementary school because we do have some kids that just take more time to mature in mathematics instruction. Thank you. Um, I guess I, I appreciate that and I hear you that some kids need more time than others, but to me that doesn't mean we shouldn't really try. I think we're trying every day, <laughs> to be fair. I, I think, I think we, uh, that's the other thing that this point five uh, edition would give us an opportunity to, to dig a little deeper into some of the math instruction as well. Because we, we do want to try. Um, but abstract thinking in mathematics is, is a challenge, particularly for kids in fifth, sixth grade. Um, Dr. Dimmick, I'll just echo Dr. Dimmick because um, you and I have had this conversation with many, many community members and that actually someone came to our office hours last time, um, our last office hours about this. I think there's a communications piece to it um, that a lot of, and Dr. Noon, you, you and I have talked about this as well. Um, and I know that you're working on, you know, making sure that parents understand, but there is a communication piece with this and have helping parents understand um, what what the math piece how, how that fits in with the ib diploma um and i think you know in my opinion uh it does it starts at oak street and before meh you know getting that word out and um you know helping students if, if that's something that they you know that they really want to aspire to um you know before learning in seventh grade oh you're going to have to take a summer course so i think you know maybe it, it it's a much bigger conversation i think it could actually be a work session in and of itself um in terms of th this math piece with with the ib diploma and you know is there something that we can do for students who, who want to give a go want to have some extra time maybe in fifth grade to try to you know, bump up their math skills while they're still at Oak Street. I don't know, but um, that's a much bigger discussion for another time and, and could have some budget implications. Yes, Ms. Tice. I, I will say just to, to follow on with that, I'm sorry, Ms. Tice, um, Jen Fessenden is currently scheduling a math night for Oak Street okay. um, this spring. So there'll be a lot of information out there for parents to show just how you can achieve the IB diploma, even if you're not an above grade level math student coming out of Oak Street. Okay, great. That's great to know. Thank you. I hate to pile on when we're so far off, off our original topic, but I just wanted to chime in that I just wholeheartedly agree with all three of you or everyone who's chimed in here. I think it's all really important, valid points. I think that the new website with the walkthrough and the voiceover of the math prop, uh, 
options was fantastic. I thought it was so clear. I've been wanting that forever. I've not asked for it, but I've been in my brain wanting that forever. And to see it appear was really helpful. And I think it's a really rich discussion. I think I think both things are, are so true that that we should be and we are and we should continue to be pushing our, you know any kid who has the the ability and the opportunity to to go as far as they can in math at the earlier years because it does for those who who can access it if there's anyone on the bubble that we can get over the bubble it's just that it gives them that many more options in the secondary world right without having to do concurrent math or to do summer school i also totally agree with dr noonan that that's not going to be appropriate or or possible for every student and i think the last thing we want to do is put undue pressure on families and students to feel bad that they're not at above grade level the whole point is it's you should be excited if you are able to be on grade level that's the whole point of calling it on grade level right so i don't want to take it too far and make and, and have there be any sort of undue pressure or stress on kids at fifth and sixth and seventh grade because there are options. So I guess I just am echoing um, Chair Down's point that this communication piece, like if we could just shout this conversation from the rooftops to the parents and the families who are stressed about math, that yes, let's work as hard as we can for those bubble kids, but yes, let's, you know, there are other options and let's not be stressed if you can't do it, um, but let's double down when and how we can. So thanks. Thank you, Ms. Tice. Ms. Michael, I am sorry. Somehow we veered all the way into curriculum, but we're, we're coming back now to budget. Okay, here we come. All right, question number seven was regarding responsive classroom training. Okay, question number eight was regarding the position reductions and could we accomplish them with attrition? One clarification there, I think it was a third grade teacher. Yes, the third grade teaching position is currently not filled. So that one will be super easy to accomplish through attrition because the position is currently vacant. So when we look at their current third grade enrollment, um, based on the number of students they had and to ensure we were meeting the school board ratio for class size, we only needed eight of the nine budgeted positions. So we didn't fill that ninth position this school year. Right, so that one will be super easy because the enrollment next year also calls for eight teachers, not nine. Okay, question number nine was about parental leave and who is eligible, um, including birth and adoption. Yes, Ms. Silver. I just really want to applaud the um, efforts to include, to, to have a very expansive view on what used to be known as maternity leave is now known as parental leave, now encompasses adoption, now encompasses a lot of things, so thank you. And, and I, just to piggyback on that, I thought the previous, uh, I think it was Vice Chair Gould's question, I thought that was really clear and interesting. Is that, has, well, assuming everything goes forward and we approve this, that will all then be, all those details will be provided to the staff. Correct, all of this information will end up being in the policy, okay. the leave policy. Okay, I thought it was very, very clear and easy to understand, so thank you for that. Yes, please, Vice Chair Gould. Uh, more of a one-on-one -on -one question, I'm gonna go back to question one and tie, which is the parental leave, or uh, I think it was uh, question one. Um, I'm sorry, question two. So the calculation, so FMLA is the, uh, it's a federal law that allows for 12 weeks unpaid and you don't lose your position. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. And so are we saying that if they want to combine different options, let's say the six weeks that we would be offering plus any um, sick leave, I, and I'm, I'm, I was processing this today, is this, does that mean they have to take all that within a 12-week period 
as designated by FMLA, or could they add FMLA on top of the six weeks and the sick leave and FMLA? So they run concurrently, which means you're only eligible for that 12 <clears throat> weeks of leave. Of that 12 weeks of FML leave, six weeks of it can be paid using this family leave. The leave itself doesn't have to all be together, right? Many times we have employees who um, take turns in terms of the parental leave with their spouse. So it doesn't have to be sequential, but it's not, you get 12 weeks of FML plus another six weeks of parental leave. Plus X number of weeks with their paid leave, very paid sick leave. Correct, all of that is, is wrapped into that 12 week FML period. What's the, the rationale behind that? I mean, I imagine that would be a significant amount of time for a position and, and you would have to fill, I'm not trying to answer it for you, but I mean, that's, that was my guess on that. Yes, it is a significant amount of time for a position. Um, we also look at um, what fits within the FML law, so it fits very well in terms of that federal policy, in terms of it being concurrent. Um, and it's also very consistent with what other employers are doing. And most importantly, it was consistent with the general government's policy. Okay. So they have a, a parental leave policy and um, all of their leave like that must be concurrent with the FML period. So consistency with them was probably our highest priority in terms of looking at that. Okay, and then uh, the parental leave overall, yeah. Uh, in terms of alignment with the general government's parental leave, how closely aligned are our policies? Um, almost directly aligned? Or are they loosely aligned? What's your... So this would directly align. They previously okay. had parental leave and then they expanded it to six weeks. So I do believe this would perfectly align us in terms of that benefit. Okay. Thank you. All right. So the next question after parental leave um, was sick leave payout. Um, so are there any questions on how we um, calculated what that cost estimate was? Okay, after sick leave payout, the next question um, was advanced academics and it just refers back to the previous question. <clears throat> question 12 was also regarding the position reduction, so we did refer back to that previous question that was asked. Do you mind just, I, I, since I, I wasn't able to process this today and we got sure. it, can you just answer question 12 then? So from my reading, we had cuts, significant cuts in two of the classes, uh, in students, but then we had increases in students in two other classes. Um, we're not concerned with any staffing ratios then by removing teachers, but still having increases in students? That's correct. So included in the budget document, we have position summaries that show all of our positions at schools, as well as the school board staffing ratios, and then we have enrollment by each grade level. So what we do as part of the budget development process is we take our projections from Weldon Cooper by grade level. We look at, based on the school board staffing formulas, those ratios, how many teachers would be required at each grade level. So we're sure that with these reductions, we're still in line with that. Um, what you see here in terms of that first grade position is our incoming kindergarten classes have been smaller, right? So as we see a smaller kindergarten class moving up, the projections for first grade is lower. Should our first grade students come in higher than projected, right, we will adjust that and then hire additional position. We have the staffing reserve, um, which does have that position. We have a position in that that will allow us to ensure that um, if we need to, we'll add an additional position to ensure we're maintaining those class size ratios set by the school board. Okay. Thank you. Uh huh. Question 13 was how we costed parental leave. 
Okay, and then question 14 was regarding the grocery tax, um, the loss of the grocery tax and the hold harmless funding from the state. And then question 15 was advanced academics, so we referred back to a previous question. And then question 16 was also related to the position reductions, um, so we tied back as well. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. I, you just, school staffing ratios, so student to teacher ratios, what are our ratios? So we have a different ratio for kindergarten, first, and second grade, which is no more than 22 students per teacher um, at... On average. On average. Thank you. Um, she's already opened them. Oh, it's policy 6.5. <laughs> we also do have them in that budget document. For the upper elementary grades, it shifts up to 24 um, students per teacher. On average. Other questions? Well, thank you, uh, Ms. Michael and Ms. Kopic, for these great uh, answers to our questions. And um, as you can see, we we see the budget as is not just you know. I think all of us look at look at the budget is more just numbers. We really see how it affects our personnel and our academics. And so I think that's why we these conversations sometimes tend to get bigger. So I appreciate your patience with us, Ms. Michael. And um, again, thank you for those really informative um, answers and Ms. Kopic as well. Uh, and then again, if you all can, what's the deadline for the next set of questions? It would be great if we could get them Let's see, our next meeting, we do have a little bit of time here. here. We do. Yes. Our next meeting is Valentine's Day, February yeah, 14th. February 14th, oh, so what, what are you? <laughs> yeah, 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 so, so excited to spend. I know, in general, if we can have them a week before, it's yeah. great. The sooner you get them to us, we'll continue to work on them, right? And if we get them earlier, um, we always do try to post them the week before the board meeting. Um, so it's always helpful that, if we have them. Yeah, now we'll get into a cadence of that. This one this one came up pretty quickly. So if you can get them to us a week before, that'd be great. And then that would mean we would get the budget documents, or the um, question answers when then? If the you would get them at the next work session. Uh, for us to review. Like so, so I think so. We would have Sorry. a couple days before, so they would come to us. Yes, if you can get them to uh, us a week before, we'll try to complete them by that Friday, so that they can be posted over the weekend. Okay. This one was just a quick turnaround, yeah. and we, we couldn't get them out. So. Okay. okay. So if everyone can try to get their budget questions in by February seventh, and then by that Friday we'll have the answers, and you'll have all weekend and Monday and Tuesday to review. So I, this was this one was a tight turnaround because we had these back-to-back -back meetings two weeks in a row, which is unusual for us. So, okay, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on to now um, section um, agenda item six, materials for board review, and you'll see the uh, report there, and that's for your board review. And we are now going to move into closed meeting. We're at section seven on the agenda. If someone were at 7.01, if someone could read us into close, please. Yes, Vice Chair Gould. Pursuant to the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, I move that the board convene a closed meeting for the following purposes to discuss or consider the identified subject matter, legal matters under section 2.2-3711A8, in particular consultation with legal counsel employed or retained by the public body regarding the specific legal matters requiring the provision of legal advice by such counsel. 
Thank you. May I have a second? Uh, second. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. All those in favor say yes. Yes. All those opposed say no. Okay, we are moving into close, and um, this is going to be a, a lengthy closed session. So um, we will probably, for anyone watching, um, our guests, we will probably say good evening to you because we will um, not be coming back out of close for quite a while, well over an hour. So again, thank you to our um, to our public comment uh, speakers this evening, our school board candidates. We really appreciate you being here, and uh, thank you to staff and those who are watching. <laughs>